For the past several weeks, we've been looking at the, the seven marks of, well, I shouldn't say the seven marks, seven marks of healthy discipleship. I don't know if these are the marks, but there are some marks that uh, have been identified. Uh, so these are the, this is the evidence uh, of a, a fully mature, fruit-producing Christian is kind of how we've phrased it. So let me just give you a quick recap of what we've talked about before we continue on. Uh, so we've gone through four marks, four marks so far. Uh, the first was B- before you do. Uh, in John 15, Jesus said, yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, and so often as Christians, we, we, we get so ahead of our being with God, we just focus on the doing for God. And it's just an unsustainable thing. It's like we're, we're trying to dispense that which we don't have. And so it's so important that we make sure that we, we spend time with God and, and become the person that God wants us to be so that we can do the things that God created us to do. So that's kind of what, what being before doing is all about. Then we looked at following the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus. And the idea here is that, that when we follow the Americanized Jesus, it's, it's like we follow him because he's going to make life you know, better and easier for us. But that's not what Jesus said Christianity is all about. In fact, he said in Matthew 16, 24, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. Success in God's eyes might look like absolute failure in the eyes of the world. It might require us to look foolish or, or, or whatever it is, or weak. But yet God says, no, that's okay. Uh, if you follow him, it might mean uh, taking up your cross and, and enduring a lot of hardship for his sake. But in the end, it, it's God's approval of us that really matters, not what everybody else thinks. And so, so that's what uh, following the crucified, not the Americanized Jesus, is all about. Uh, then we looked at embracing the gift of our God-given limits. And we don't usually like to think of ourselves as having limits, but it's very clear that we do. Uh, the only one without limits is God. Uh, the Psalms tell us in, in Psalm 121 verse 4, it says, Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. And that's just, just one example of how unlimited our God is. He does not need to, to take a nap or, or have a rest. Uh, he can do that, but we can't. We are limited. We're the creation. He's the creator. We need to recognize that we have limits. And, and that too is okay because we can use that as an opportunity to trust in the one who has no limits. We can put our faith in him. And through that, uh, God just reveals his, his power all over again to us. Uh, as Paul reminds, or as yeah, Paul reminds us uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, God said to him, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness, right? So God can use his power to work through our, our great limitations. Then we talked about discovering the treasures uh, buried in grief and loss. Uh, again, not a topic that we really love talking about, not something that we often talk about when it comes to discipleship, but yet it's a very real part of life. We, we experience a lot of grief and loss almost on a daily basis because we live in a sin-tainted world. And, and, and grief uh, is a proper and healthy response to living in that sin-tainted world. Certainly, we look forward to the time when God does away with all that. We read that passage in Revelation that's so encouraging where, where it says that he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And what an incredible day that will be. But in the meantime, 
Grief is a, a healthy response to the losses that we go through in life because when we acknowledge that the pain that we go through because of sin, that's actually what allows the healing process to begin. And, and as we do that, we start discovering some of the treasures that are hidden in, in that grief and loss, treasures of, of experiencing God in, in brand new ways that we never could have otherwise. But when we go through those hard times, we just see how, how good, how, how merciful, how marvelous our God is. Uh, another treasure that we talked about is the fact that we can then comfort others with the same comfort that we've received. You know, when, when, when you're going through hard times, nobody understands it like somebody who's already gone through that. And so that in itself is a bit of a treasure that we can offer somebody that same comfort that we once received. But again, we can't give what we haven't already had given to us. And so that's kind of the, the, the whole idea of discovering the treasures buried in our grief and our loss. Now today we're going to look at a fifth mark. Uh, and before I, I tell you what that is, let me ask you a question. Would you consider yourself to be spiritually mature? <laughs> and, and maybe a better question to go with that is why or why not? Why would you say that? What's, what's the criteria for whether or not you are uh, or anybody else is considered to be spiritually mature? You know, is it, is it Bible knowledge? Uh, is it a, an accurate grasp of theology? You know, does somebody with a, you know, a PhD in, in theology, are they more spiritually mature than someone who has no idea what eschatology or, or pneumatology is all about? Or maybe it's more about church involvement. You know, is it, is it all about your, your willingness and your commitment to serve? You know, is the guy who, who shows up here every Sunday and they are, you know, stacking chairs and setting up the sound, is that person more mature than someone who maybe only shows up once a month? Or maybe it's just age and experience. You know, is somebody who's been a Christian for 40 years, are they more spiritually mature than someone who's been a Christian for only 10? Or maybe someone who's only been a Christian for 10 months? Or maybe it's even just our, the position that we've risen to in the church, you know? Does becoming some kind of a ministry leader or maybe a board member, does that make you more spiritually mature than the average person in a congregation? Now, of course, in, in all of these different scenarios, we might, we might assume a certain level of spiritual maturity, but by no means is it a given. Uh, the, according to the Bible, according to Jesus, none of those things that we just talked about are the determining factors for whether or not someone is spiritually mature or not. Now, maybe we come up with some of these ideas and, and this understanding of spiritual maturity because of our inclination uh, towards doing rather than being. And we've talked about that a little bit. God is most interested in, in our being, who we are, what our character is. Uh, we tend to, to be inclined to, to put more emphasis on our doing, right? What we accomplish for God. And so that's kind of why we, we tend to measure our spiritual maturity by our doing, right? By, by the number of classes we attend or by how many degrees we hold or how many Bible studies we've been a part of or what leadership role we've uh, risen to in the church or how many years we've been a Christian. All these things are kind of accomplishment-based. But that's not the measure of, of what our spiritual maturity is all about. But it's easy to see why we might think that way. And we're not the first ones to do this either. Uh, if you look back in the Old Testament, the Israelites were, were doing this all the time. You know, they thought that they were, were spiritually mature if they, you know, they, they offered the right sacrifices and they, they attended all the, the religious festivals in Jerusalem. They followed all the, the laws of Moses and all those, all those good things that God commanded them to do. And generally speaking, you know, those good things are the good and right things to do, but yet they're not the measure of spiritual maturity. Uh, I was reading through in Isaiah 
and just some really strong language from God to these people who appear to be doing all the right things. Let me read that for you. Isaiah chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 11. God says, What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asks you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days of fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. This is some really strong language from God. Uh, uh, it's quite a, a tongue lashing for people who appear to be doing all the right things, who would appear to be very spiritually mature. But yet God makes it very clear that all of their religious activity means nothing to them. You know, God was looking for something else. Uh, so what was that something else? What, what were these guys missing? Well, actually, we could read on a little further in Isaiah, and God would, would list some specific things, uh, examples of what he wanted them to do. But for the sake of simplicity, I just want us to look at one verse in the book of Isaiah, or not Isaiah, in Hosea. Uh, in Hosea, uh, God's addressing basically the same issue, and he gives just a very clear summary that I really like of this, of what he did and what he didn't want from his people. So this is Hosea 6, uh, verse 6. And God says, I want you to show love not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. You know, I thought that was such a, a good, simple summary uh, of what God wants from us, right? All that religious activity of, you know, the, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the festivals and the ceremonies, all that meant nothing without having a love for God and also living out the love of God for others. Uh, and this isn't just a, an Old Testament principle that we find either. Uh, we see this throughout the New Testament as well. Uh, Paul basically says the exact same thing, just kind of in, in New Testament terms. In, in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, starting at verse uh, 1, he says, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge... If I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And then just skip down to verse 13. He says three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Let love be your highest goal. You know, Paul talks about all these things, the, the speaking in tongues and prophesying and having great wisdom and understanding and, and even just giving sacrificially. But if it's all done without having a genuine love for others, it's meaningless and useless and empty. You know, and, and that's true for us today, just as much as it was for Paul or, or for the Israelites. You know, attending church or going to Bible study, even leading Bible study or, or, or youth group or kids club, uh, giving generously in our tithes and offerings, serving on the board, serving in the music team, helping with the kids feature, stacking chairs after the service. All those are, are good and wonderful things. But if we don't truly love 
others? Paul says all that activity is just, just empty, meaningless, useless. Love has to be our highest goal, our greatest priority. It is the one measure of our spiritual maturity. And Jesus himself expresses to us just how, how critical it is for us to love God and to love others. You're familiar with the story in, in Mark 12, uh, starting at verse 28. It says, one of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, and so he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth by saying there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. No, there really is nothing more important, no, no tasks that we can undertake that are more important than loving God and loving others. And so it seems pretty clear, both from the Old and the New Testament here, that love is to be our goal. It's our, our main activity. It's the measure of our spiritual maturity. And, and of course, you guys already know this, right? You guys, if you've been to church before, you have heard this before. This is not new information. So I guess my question then is, well, how are we doing with that then? You know, how are we doing in the whole loving others and, and loving God business? You know, are we actually growing more spiritually mature as time goes on? Are we growing more loving? You know, do our, our Bible studies, for example, do they help us merely grow in knowledge? Or how are we actually growing to love each other more? You know, do our church services with all our, our songs and our sermons and our kids' features and, and whatever else we do, do those things help us love God and love our community more? Or, or would God say to us, like he said to the Israelites, you know, what makes you think I want all your tithes and offerings, says the Lord? I'm sick of your sermons and kids' features. I get no pleasure from your worship songs or your potlucks. You know? <laughs> would God say to us what he said to Hosea? I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Now, how do you think God would, would measure and evaluate our spiritual maturity? Now, I don't know your heart, but I know mine, a little bit at least. And I know my heart has plenty of room for improvement in this area. And so I don't want to leave you this morning with just a go home and love people better kind of idea. That's, that's a little bit broad. There's probably a million ways that, that we could grow in our love for God and love for others. Um, and actually, much, much of our growing in love is actually the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, it's listed in the, the fruits of the Spirit, love, right? It's one of those natural outcomes that just comes out of us as we abide in Christ. Um, however, I, I do want us to have a few thoughts to chew on this week. The Holy Spirit speaks to us, and he works through us, uh, through God's Word. And so I just want to share one verse that God has been speaking to me through about in this whole area. Uh, and it's Genesis 1. Verse 26 and 27, and it's not usually a passage you'd think of when it comes to, to loving others, but I'll, I'll explain what I, I mean as I go through it. But I'll, I'll read it for you here. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, 
Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Have you ever thought about the implications of being created in the image of God? Right? Every, every man, woman, and child that you have ever met was made in the very image of the almighty, everlasting, all-powerful, all-loving, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, God. All right? Let's just do a little exercise. I want you to look at the person beside you right now. Have a look at him. Okay? That person that you're sitting beside was made specifically and purposely by God made in God's image. God created that person to be, in God's words, to be like him. Do we realize how incredible that is? That's amazing. I mean, think about it this way. All right, imagine that, you know, God created all the universe. He, he did all that stuff, made the world. Uh, and then he decided he wanted to make mankind in his image. But he decided he only needed one. Just one person instead of all the, the billions of us that there are. But let's say that God just created one. One person uh, created in his image to be, uh, to, to live with God, to exist with him for eternity, just to enjoy God's goodness and, and fellowship for all time. Now look at that person that you sat beside again. Imagine that that is that person, right? That's just how, how uniquely special and wondrous it is to be made in the image of God, right? Each person is just such a, an incredible treasure, right? There's nothing on this planet that is more valuable, more precious than, than a person created in the image of God. But is that how we treat each other? You know, as infinitely wondrous, unique, and special treasures? Is that how you treated your spouse this morning? Is that how you treated your kids when they disobeyed you earlier this week? Is that how you thought of the homeless guy that you passed as you drove down the road? Or, or that reckless kid that cut you off in traffic? Or that coworker that was spreading lies about you? Or the Mormons that rang your doorbell during dinner time? So many times we treat people so much less than the image of God that they truly are. Now, even in our, our conversations, maybe even here today, when I wrote this, I was, I was thinking of, of what it might be like. Now I can look back and, and I can remember my own interactions. And man, I, I got to learn this. You know, we listen to people, but we listen to them not not always out of, you know, genuine interest and, and curiosity about this person who's created in the image of God, but we listen just so we can, you know, we can plan what we're going to say next or, or how we can correct their wrong point of view or, or illustrate for them just how wonderful we are or whatever it is. And we miss so many opportunities just to truly love them as Christ loves us. You know, we began with the question of, of what criteria do we use to determine if we or, or anyone else is truly spiritually mature? Well, I think just that will give us a pretty good indication right there. You know, do I genuinely love others? Do I treat every person that I interact with as, as infinitely wondrous and, and unique and, and special treasures as they are, created in the very image of God? You know, do we treat them like God treats us? 
You know, at the Last Supper, just before God, uh, before Jesus allowed himself to be crucified on a cross uh, for the sin of, of every one of us, God, uh, Jesus said to his disciples in, in John 13, 34, he said, So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. That's pretty simple. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You know, love truly is the measure of our spiritual maturity. This morning, we want to celebrate a time of communion this morning. Uh, and we do this to remember the depths of God's incredible love for us. You know, we were so precious to him that he allowed himself to be whipped and beaten and nailed on that cross all so that we could be forgiven of our sin. You know, even though we totally rebelled against God, we've lived our own rebellious lives, ignoring him, doing our own thing. But yet God still loved us so much that he was willing to die on that cross and go through all the things that he did so that we could have eternity with him, so that he could fellowship with us and, and just share his goodness and joy with us for all time. That's how God loved us. And we're to love each other with that very same love that God has for us. Do we do that? Maybe this morning as we uh, prepare to share our communion time together, maybe we just need to take a few moments to, to maybe even repent uh, of our lack of love. You know, repent of our, our apathy or our selfishness or our pride or, or whatever it is that keeps us from truly loving one another as God has loved us. And I also want to share just before we have communion, and I want to encourage you, if you've never accepted God's love for you, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that he died on that cross so much because he loved you, if you've never accepted that, maybe today would be the day that you do that. This God in heaven, I can't even begin to express how much he loves you, you who are created in his very image. And if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, I would urge you, to do that today, uh, experience the, the amazingness that comes with having a relationship with the infinite God uh, of all uh, the universe.